0: November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison with a GED and a gold. Prison, full office, youth center. I started talking to little black kids who look just like me not long ago, telling them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. Somebody let you down, they haven't been there for you, and it hurts. And you act out. Welcome to part two of a special edition episode of the
1: Game Changing Attorney podcast, featuring past conversations with many of the keynote speakers who headlined
0: the 2022 Game Changers Summit. At eight and nine, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Let me show you how to heal yourself internally and deal with your trauma, then you can live a great life.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting our conversations with the thought leaders who headlined the Game Changer Summit on the field at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. Featuring thought leaders from the legal industry and beyond, this episode will have you on the edge of your seat.
2: The one secret that I have found, it's not brains, it's the willingness to work. When I look around my firm and around the offices in America, when I look at the most successful people, they're the people in the office. They're the people trying the cases. They're the people working on the weekends. The common denominator for the most successful people that I know in my life is not that they were the smartest, it's they were the hardest working.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. To kick off this episode, we're joined by Andre Norman, a Harvard University fellow, renowned keynote speaker, and the founder of the Academy of Hope, a violence reduction program that has transformed the cultures of some of the most dangerous prisons in America. He's also the best selling author of Ambassador of Hope, turning poverty in prison into a purpose driven life. One of the most memorable moments from our
0: conversation was when Andre elaborated on his experience behind bars. Maximum Security Prison is a whole nother world. It's scary. There's no other way to describe it but scared. First time in, you should be scared to death. People get raped. People get beaten. People get stabbed. People get murdered. People get tortured daily across this country. So when I got there, I was scared. They called me down to the unit team, and a nice caseworker sat me down and said, hey, you can go get your GED. You're going to have to drive a forklift. You can do all this other stuff, and you can make your time work for you. So at 1 o'clock, I'm lining up to go to school. And Dominic and the guys pulled up and like, where you going? We going to the yard. I'm going to school. I'm about to get my GED, my forklift degree. And they're like, oh, you got the white lady story. What are you talking about? He said, you see them guys over there? They're a member of this white gang. When they find out that you're a loner, they're going to run up on you. They're going to beat you, rob you, and who knows what else. Do you think the caseworker's going to come help? You? see them guys over there? They're going to come beat the shit out of you. You know why? Because you're a loner. You see the CO? He's going to have no respect for you. You know why? Because you're a loner. So you got a choice. You can go with the caseworker who's not going to help you, or you can come roll with us, and we're going to hold you down to make sure you're safe. I took your little handbook, flipped it in the trash, grabbed me a knife, and I went out to the yard. I didn't look back. In that moment, it's interesting, because knowing now what what you know, if if you could go back to that point, was that true? Those are the only two options? Yeah. (laughs) Going back right now, unless I had some Mike Tyson skills, it wouldn't even make a difference because you outnumbered. So going back right now, if you put me back in that same unit at the same time, even with all the skills I have now, I'd have signed up. Because you can't beat the mob, whether it's white, black, or Spanish. One man can't beat 20. I don't care how good you fight. So looking back at that particular situation, day one in the penitentiary, I'm signed up for the gang again. 100% no blank. Because that's how you're going to survive. You can't go to school if your jaw is wide shut. I'm saying you can't go to school, I'm saying, if your head's split open. You're not going to forklift class if you got holes punched in your chest. It's not going to work. So you have to be safe before anything can actually transpire. And safety comes from being involved in that gang.
1: Now through the years when you're in, in prison, just kind of, so you have goals, right? I mean, out of 20,000 people, you, you've got up to what, number two, number three? I got to number three. Number three. Why number three? I mean, I know I asked earlier, but just, you know, why not in the top 10%, top
0: 20%, like, why, why become the regulator? I'm an entrepreneur, and I believe in winning. I've never signed up for anything to say I want to be number two. That's not American culture where you sign up and want to be third place. <laughs> the goal is to win. And in that space, wanting to be the ultimate winner, the toughest, most feared guy on the planet is the gang leader who runs the entire prison system, the ultimate shot caller. That's the number one guy. In politics, it's the president. It's not the governor. The number one politician is the president. The number one person in the penitentiary is a shot caller. The shot caller, not a shot caller. And I was like, I want to be the shot caller. And that was the goal. I want to be the top of the list. And I went on that quest. And I made it from number 20,000 to number three. Then I had an opportunity to become number one. Because again, it's about how much work you put in, how much violence and kindness you can inflict. When I got a chance to be number one, I just had to hurt a couple more people and I was there. And before I could do it, I had an argument with God. And God said, don't do this life choice. And me and God argued, but he won the argument. The way I explain it to people, it's like when Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz got to the end of the road and she wanted to get the tin hard and all the rest of the stupid stuff. She pulls the curtain back and the wizards are fake. When I got to the end of the road and there was my chance to be the wizard, I pulled the curtain back and then I saw for what it was. It was all fake. It was like make-believe. This champion of champions is not champion of nothing. It's all made up. And I saw for what it was and God helped me realize that um, I picked a bad path and he was giving me another one. And this is the crazy thing about the Wizard of Oz. Nobody in Oz cared that the place was fake. Think about it, nobody in Oz kid that the whole place was fake. They just were content to live in their little section of Oz and just keep going so in
1: this moment, like this this epiphany, like was this just like one day, one night, something one was afternoon, like,
0: that's it clear. it came clear that I was about to become the King of nowhere. Boom, I'm about to become the King of nowhere, and I didn't want to be the king of nowhere so i I backed up, I went to my cell, I said, well. If I can't be a psychopath, what's the point of being in prison? It didn't make sense. Prison always made sense to me. That's why I was 100% all in, because I could rationalize it in my brain that this makes sense. I got this goal of being the number one guy. That goal is now gone. It's removed. I don't want to be the number one guy, because I see it for what it was. I said, well, first time, six and a half years. I said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. So I said, well, I want to be free. Never said that before. Never even thought it. Then I looked around at the white guys, the black guys, the Spanish guys. I looked at the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who went to church, the guys who went to the mosque, the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who worked out on the yard, the basketball players, the chess players, the philosophers. They all got free, and they all came back. Free doesn't work. So I said, I don't want to be free because it doesn't work. That's when I said, well, what do I need to do to not come back here? I said, if I'm successful, I won't come here. I said, successful people come from college. I'll go to college. I'll be successful. And I won't come back. I had to pick a school. So I picked a school called Harvard University. And I picked Harvard, not because it's the biggest school on the planet. It's 20 minutes from my house. And I used to ride my skateboard there. So I came out myself the next day, I told the fellas, yo, get together, check this out. They said, what's up? I said, I figured it out. I said, I'm going home. I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. And they looked at me. I said, no, no, no. I'm going home. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. Now they wanted to laugh at me, but I had a habit of stabbing people. (laughs) So nobody laughed. Then one of my homies pulled me to the side and said, yo, Dre, what's up with this Harvard stuff? And he told me, you can't go to Harvard. I said, why? He said, you're black. I said, I know that. He said, you're a criminal. I said, I know that. He said, you're a gang member. I said, I know that. He said, you're in the hole for trying to kill eight people. I said, I know that. He said, you was talking about killing seven people yesterday. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, you can't read that good. He just kept telling me all the reasons I couldn't go to Harvard. And what I was hearing were my friends from the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. I was like, dude, fall back. Call my mom, call my dad, call my grandmother. And I realized I was on my own. So I stood in the mirror. And I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this dream from happening? I'm done blaming other people. Because up until then, I blamed everything or everybody for what happened in my life or didn't happen. I said, what's inside of Andre Norman that's stopping this from happening? And I sent it up, I made a list, I started working on my list. I got my GED first. Then I started going to anger management classes because I had a slight anger management problem. Then I went to the law library and taught myself the law. I became a jailhouse lawyer. I reversed my case on appeal. And I started going to self-help groups. I started going to programs. I started writing my own book. I started doing everything I could to better Andre to put myself in a position to be successful. Then I went to the parole board and the first time I went, they told me no. I walked in, they heard my story, heard my pitch. They said no. And instead of being the angry black man, which is who I used to be, I asked them, I said, why did you say no? They said, you know something? Usually we don't tell people. And they told me why they said no. I had an understanding. I went back and I worked on their list. When I came back the next time, I won my parole. Then November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison with a GED and a goal. Prison fall office youth center. I started talking to little black kids who look just like me not long ago, telling them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. Somebody let you down. They haven't been there for you, and it hurts. And you act out. At eight and nine, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Let me show you how to heal yourself internally and deal with your trauma. Then you can live a great life. Started with black kids, then started with black girls, and know Spanish kids, when they asked me to go to the white school. I'm like, white kids ain't got no problem. This is their country. They own everything. I went to a white school. They drink at the white school. They do drugs at the white school. They have bullies at the white school. They had fat kids at the white school. That was crazy. All the shows I grew up watching, white kids had it fixed by the end of the half hour. So to walk into a privileged suburban school and these kids had problems, it was too much for me. I was like, wow, they got jacked up lives just in the bigger house. I realized being 15 was tough, no matter where you came from and what you look like. So my philosophy became, if you call me, I'll show up. No more screening or check the box. You call me, I show up. And for 22 years, I've been showing up.
1: And it almost seems like you're, you're a man on a mission of wanting to either pay it forward or with all the speaking you're doing and working with youth and, and so on. Why approach it that way? Like what in you, rather than just focusing on Andre and saying, let me just worry about myself, why, why want to influence
0: others? When I wanted to change my life, Natan Schaefer, who was a Jewish chaplain at the prison, when nobody else would come within 100 feet of me, this man sat with me, and he coached me, and he educated me, he taught me respect, he taught me accountability, he taught me how to be human. Of all the people I met prior to Natan, nobody had taught me how to be human. They taught me how to crush, kill, destroy, not cry, handle the pain. They taught me it's not the one who inflicts the most pain, but who can endure the most pain, who wins, all this madness they taught me. He taught me to be loving. He taught me to be caring. He taught me that I was a vessel of good. And then the people who fed into me, even though I didn't deserve it, there was a CEO named Rob Henderson. He let me into the anger management block. When people didn't want to come near me because of my status, he gave me a shot. He said, man, move in the anger management block. I think it'd be good for you. And he let me in. He took some heat for it, but I went in and I crushed it. I was in the block for probably like three months, and the first time in the history of this program, they went to the warden and said, can we hire this man? He's that good. They said, you can't hire prisoners. <laughs> but Rob Henderson gave me a shot. Natan gave me a shot. Sister Ruth and Sister Kathleen gave me a shot. There's a guy named Pat Dempsey, a Catholic volunteer, used to come in every week and sit with me. And he gave me a shot. There were so many people who gave me a chance when I was technically undeserving. And so when I got free... When I got loose and I got on my path to success, I'm going to tell you the one thing that Ton taught me. Of all the things, success is not a success without a successor. So if you're not helping somebody else become successful, you're not successful, you're just lucky. And I took that to heart. So my goal is to help people be successful. What their success that they want is not relevant to me. Just get there. Stay alive and get there.
1: Next up is the one and only John Morgan, founder and CEO of America's largest injury law firm, Morgan & Morgan. John believes that hunger, the insatiable desire to win, can't be taught. You're born with it. One of my favorite moments from our conversation was when John described how he's able to gauge whether or not someone has that hunger.
2: I've always been fascinated with paper boys. And I'll tell you why I've been fascinated with paper boys. Paper boys are 10, 11, 12 years. They don't even have paper boys anymore. But. You're 10, 11 years old, and you're tied to this job every day, rain, sleet, snow, grouchy customers, bad customers, but you do it every single day. Those paper boys, I believe, are lions. They have that internal it. Warren Buffett was a paper boy. Oprah Winfrey was a paper girl. When I meet people, especially my age, I say, Can I ask you a question? I say, What? I said, Were you a paper boy? Were you a paper girl? And when they tell me they were, it's like my own little Briggs Meyer personality test. I know who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with a lion or not. And so that is the internal thing. And and it's just as lucky as being Shaquille O'Neal and being seven foot two and run like a gazelle. And I imagine it's probably gonna lead to a very frustrating,
1: difficult life if you're not that person, but you try to be, if
2: the sloth tries to be the lion, right? But here's the great thing. There's also another animal and they're mules. There's the hardworking mule and there's the lazy mule. The hardworking mule, you put that hat up on the ears and the ears stick out, the daisies, and that mule can plow all day long. And then you got another mule who's built the same way, but won't do anything. The one secret that I have found, it's not brains. It's the willingness to work. Nobody that I know that's very successful has not been a hard worker. And so if you think you're missing something, put the time in. When I look around my firm and around the offices in America, When I look at the most successful people, they're the people in the office. They're the people trying the cases. They're the people working on the weekends. The common denominator for the most successful people that I know in my life is not that they were the smartest, is they were the hardest working. So you can actually work yourself to where you wanna be. Even if you're a mule, because mules can work for 10 hours And at the end of the day, there's this beautiful field that produces a whole bunch of vegetables.
1: I remember in that you can't teach hunger. You talk about there's some that go, you know, coming out of the weekend, they come back as satiable slugs. And then there's others that are just constantly
2: insatiable. You ask them, when are you done? They're not done. When is it enough? It's never enough. There's two types of people. And and here's the problem inside of our firms. Inside of all of our firms, you have you. And then you have the people inside of your firm. You have one business objective. The people working with you or for you have another objective. Now, their objective may not be what your objective is. Their objective may be I got to work this hard, get this much, and then I want quality of life. And almost everybody has a limit of satiability. If I get that, I'm done. Most people, I'd say 95% or more, have a satiable appetite. But then there's that rare bird that has an insatiable appetite. And no matter what they have, they want more. And it's not about money, because you can only eat one cheeseburger and drink one maker's mark. Your pockets are bulging. But you can't eat more than one cheeseburger and one Maker's Mark. It's about winning. It's about succeeding. It's about being respected. And so what I'm always looking for inside of all of my organizations are those people who have that insatiable appetite that they're never going to stop because they want to be successful, respected, and revered. You had an early job, I think, as uh, Pluto, right, at, at Disney World. Could you imagine that? I did magic at Disney. I was Pluto at Disney. I love Disney. I love Walt Disney. I met Roy Disney one night when I was doing magic at Merlin's. He came in, and I said, where do you stay when you come here? And he points out, I was at Merlin's Magic Store, and he points out at the castle, and he says, I stay there. I go, where? He goes, Walt built us an apartment there. I said, Mr. Disney, I can't believe I'm you. He said, John, don't call me. Mr. Disney call me Roy. I said, why? Well, he goes, call me Roy. And I decided that night at Merlin's Magic Shop, if I ever had a business, nobody ever called me Mr. Morgan. Everybody called me Don. So anytime anybody tries to call me John or Mr. Morgan, no go. It's if, if Walt Disney can be Walt, I can be John. And I loved working at Disney. The best thing about it, like when I was Pluto, and I'd be standing at main gate, tram, the, the monorails coming at the beginning of the day, and you look up. And here comes grown men in sandals, running, full tilt, you know, knocking kids down to come take a picture with Pluto and Mickey. In the first day we had the VIP unit out there. All day long, you're working with people who are having the single best day of their entire life. They've come to Disney World. So I loved that. And so I was inspired by, uh, by Walt Disney and my time at Disney World. So you mentioned Roy Disney. So Walt, the visionary, he had Roy. Do you have a Roy? I have a Roy. My wife is very smart. I kind of consider her my Roy. The only thing that she has not understood yet is she thinks she has an absolute veto on everything. And so our fights come from I'm looking for advice. I'm not looking for a veto. So whenever we clash... But I rely on her. And and yeah, look, if you read a book a long time ago called The Millionaire Next Door, it takes two guys that make the same amount of money, but to the end of their life, one has a lot of money and one doesn't have a lot of money. The one thing you find about the people who have a lot of money, rule number one, stay married. When you start cutting shit in half, you you lose you lose you lose half. The millionaire next door always relied on professionals, CPAs, and lawyers. And even though we're lawyers. We're not that kind of lawyer, so I rely heavily. So I got a whole team of Roy's around me. In in terms of other
1: causes, I, I know now you've expanded uh, in Florida, really pushing for raising the minimum wage and then the legalization of marijuana. So those, I know those are things you're very, very passionate about. If you can kind of speak to, speak
2: to those, and then I want to talk about the, the pot daddy stuff. First of all, I think politics is broken. My wife's Republican, I was a Democrat. I look at the left, they're crazier in hell. I look at the right. I mean, listen. When people are wearing buffalo hats with horns, I'm out. What I believe is that most of us agree about most things. That you know, I was polling real high. They all everybody wanted me to run for governor. I was polling real high, but you know I don't want to get chewed up like that. Plus, you know I live in Hawaii half the year. My brother was paralyzed, and marijuana has been a very important part of his life. Because if he didn't use it, Perkis said Xana, I mean he was a zombie. And so I decided to try to legalize medical marijuana. And I missed the first time by a fraction. And I came back and did it again and passed it with 71% of the vote. And then I believe the reason this country is so mad is that the have nots are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I believe one day, we don't think it can happen. Marie Antoinette didn't think it could happen. Batista didn't think it could happen. The czar didn't think it. You push people so far, they'll just come take your shit because nothing from nothing equals nothing. If your kid's hungry, people are leaving islands in cardboard boats because nothing from nothing equals nothing. So I believe that the issue of our day is income inequality. So I say, you know what? I've already passed marijuana. I believe in the minimum wage. I passed the minimum wage, which is hard in a state like Florida, with 61% of a, a landslide. What that proved to me was that most of us agree on most things. But if you put a R or a D next to it, we don't agree except about 47% on one side and 47% on the other, and the 6% decide the best. So I did the marijuana for my brother, I did the minimum wage because I feel passionately, I pay all my people at least $15 an hour. And I think I wanted to prove to America and to other politicians, and and I think you'll see now, people are always talking about Florida's minimum wage. I think in this deep South, for that to have happened was a seismic shift, and now you're seeing businesses are voluntarily raising their wage to 16, 17. And I believe it's good politics for self-preservation. Because if you don't, there'll be a day where you'll be living in Mad Max, where people will be coming into your house, taking your stuff because you get so desperate, you have no choice. So those have been the things I've done in Florida, very gratified. And it's worked out for me because I've been like on a crusade down in Florida for 10 years. Now, there's going to be some people that are, are watching this or listening to this and they'll say, well, that's
1: that's easy for him to say. It's easy for him to do. And a lot of what we talked about yesterday is the fact that everything worthwhile is an uphill climb. And it, it seems like everything you try to do, there's always some resistance or pushback against it. Like I even saw recently they're trying to cap the amount that you can actually donate to some of these causes and so on. If you could speak to just the friction that you've had to go up against to really get things done and not just with the, you know, the marijuana or the minimum wage, but just even in growing the law
2: firm. Well, look, there's always resistance. There's always vision blockers, I call them. There's always somebody trying to stop you from doing this. Anything that's worthwhile is not easy. But what I would say to that is this. Sam Walton had 10 rules. Number 10 was the most important. And what he said was, swim upstream. When you see people coming downstream, they're on these big floats, sucking on my ties cocoa butter all over their fat asses, just rolling down the river. They don't know where they're going. They're just going somewhere fast and maybe over, but Sam Walton said, swim upstream. So you're in there swimming upstream. You're passing the people in the floats and the inner tubes, sucking on the Mai Tais with the cocoa butter, who may be going to their death. But once you get to the top, there's a very furrowed, fallowed soil. And when Sam Walton left downtown Ben Franklin and went out to a field and built a box, kind of a box like this, everybody said, you're crazy. But guess what? He swam upstream. And what I will tell you, Mike, is when people tell you you can't, that just means they can't. That doesn't mean you can't. That doesn't mean, that just means they won't. It doesn't mean you won't. And so when people say no, I have a saying, you know, no means yes. People tell me no, no means yes. And so you have to make sure that you understand that a lot of people are trying to stop you from being great because they know they can't be great. And misery loves company.
1: Laura Wasser is regarded as one of the most elite divorce attorneys in the country, having represented high-profile celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Angelina Jolie, Johnny Depp, Britney Spears, and Ryan Reynolds. A career as a lawyer may be considered her destiny, as her initials are LAW. And she's the daughter of one of the most feared divorce attorneys in America.
3: Yeah, there would be a lot of as where one parent would be like, oh, it's so nice to see you. And the other parent would be like, you're at the shitty table at the back, because he had represented one or the other of them. But for the most part, you know... We were kids. I didn't know too much about what was going on um, until I got a little bit older and kind of understood. My parents didn't split up until I was in my junior year of high school, and they did it in the most respectful, amicable way. So, And my dad, although he may have been the most feared, he really has always been a big proponent of resolution and settlement and doing things, if possible, out of court.
1: And I'm curious, so your your name and your initials, like Laura Allison Wasser, L-A-W, law, uh, was that intentional?
3: Yes, it was intentional, but my parents, they found out that my father passed the bar exam and they celebrated by having sex and making me, they figured out. So that's why they named me Laura Allison Wasser and my initials are law. And I kind of fought it because I thought it was really geeky until I was in my 40s, well into my legal career, and then I embraced it, and now I actually have a couple monograms that say LAW.
1: Now, it seems like becoming a lawyer was, was always in the cards, but from what I've read, that wasn't always the case, including, you know, you spent a lot of time in, in New York, and when you were putting yourself through school at NYU, doing a lot of things not at all related to the practice of law.
3: No, I did not think I was going to be an attorney. I wasn't I didn't think I was going to live in Southern California. I did a lot of traveling when I was in my teens and 20s. I lived in Switzerland for a year. I lived in Canada for a while. I lived in Australia for a year and a half and then I got married during law school to a fellow who lived in Madrid, Spain. So we were living there. So I really had the travel bug. I did a lot of, you know, writing about my trips and my adventures and I probably thought I was going to go into some kind of a, you know, travel journalism field. And then kind of my folks said, here's the deal. We'll continue to support you as long as you're in school. And I thought, oh, God, I better find somewhere to go to school. And so I decided to go to law school. I was a rhetoric major at Cal. I graduated from Berkeley. And I decided to go to law school. And I applied and I got here in here in Los Angeles at Loyola Law School, which is a great Institution, and now I'm on their board of trustees. Then, still didn't think I would be a divorce lawyer, family law attorney, but because the marriage to the Spanish guy had kind of come to an end after a lengthy 14 months, I had to go back to my dad and say, can I come clerk there for a summer while I wait for my bar results? And he begrudgingly, not being a big fan of nepotism, said that I could clerk for the firm because I needed the money to pay my rent. And I passed the bar, and I found that I kind of had a a knack for it, and I really liked it, and he let me stay on, and now it's my firm.
1: <laughs> so so it seems like you've had an interesting relationship with your dad, I mean, including the, the very first divorce case, right, that you tried in the sense, for, so what I read, it was something along the lines of you coming to your father and saying that you didn't think that this marriage was going to work out, and he said you know, something to the extent of, well, then go ahead and take care of it.
3: That is true, and so we actually, this is back in 94, got an annulment. They were a little easier to get back then, which really means the marriage never took place, which would have been a surprise to everybody that worked at the Bel Air Hotel, because my wedding portrait hung there for years, even after. Um, yeah, but my parents were always very much in favor of, if you need something fixed, fix it yourself. You know, Don't pack it if you can't carry it on the plane. And so that was, yes, my first case was my divorce or annulment. And then, I, like I said, I stayed on here and really, it's a very, very interesting field of law. And I really have a passion for the human nature that's kind of involved in the transition from a marriage relationship to a co-parenting relationship or a separation or two different households or however that family decides to deal with the divorce.
1: When it comes to divorce, so I've read that I think 50% of marriages end in divorce. Now, again, I don't know who conducted this study, but those don't seem like very good odds.
3: <laughs> no, they don't. Keep in mind, and again, I think it did go down a little bit. We're always a little couple years behind on this research, so the last, I believe, accurate kind of figures that have been put out in the U.S. are still pre or during COVID. So it's really hard to say. You know, everybody said COVID, there's going to be such a surge, and we did in the online world see a bit of a spike because it was easier to do from home, and you were cooped up with people. But for the most part, it's been a pretty steady 45 to 60 percent. Now remember, this is of marriages, not of every couple. So, And the stats show that second marriages are more likely to end in divorce than first marriages, and third marriages even more so. So it's not every person, it's every marriage. And yeah, they're not good stats. And I always say that, which is if 50 percent to be averaging of marriages and in divorce, isn't it incumbent upon us to figure out a way to do it better so that it's not such a, t- I mean, 50%, that's half of them. Don't we have to figure out a better way of doing it rather than the old fashioned way that we saw in movies like Kramer versus Kramer. And, you know, that's so painful. And so Breakups are going to be hard no matter what, but legislatively, administratively, you know, financially, there has to be a better way of doing it. So
1: just from your experience what are you finding as to be the most common reasons why why people are getting divorced
3: lack of communication lack of growth look it's people would say it's fidelity or finances or whatever but those are more symptoms than they are causes it's human nature for us to fall in love and then we want to kind of lock into whatever is the most you know secure protected you know having children together yummy feeling but obviously after a certain period of time Things aren't as fresh and alive and fun and you've got, there's always going to be downfalls. And what I have found is that couples that figure out a way to deal with their communication skills and really build tools for good communication when things are good, before they move in together, before they get married, as they're discussing a prenuptial agreement, perhaps, those are the couples that can weather the storm so that when things get bad, they can go into their you know, toolbox, pull out those things that help them connect and communicate and, and make it work. But people don't. They repress things. They shove them down. They get angry. They go outside the marriage. And that's why marriages don't end up together. People grow apart because they're not working on staying together.
1: And when it comes to like the celebrity divorces, I'm curious, how did you get, get into that? Like, because now it's, you're you're known for it, but was that always the case?
3: No, but back in the day, I was probably one of the younger family law practitioners because usually family law firms are smaller boutique firms. So it's kind of hard to get your foot in the door. So once I got my foot in the door here, Then, you know, I went to school here at Beverly Hills High School. I knew a lot of people that had gone into the entertainment industry. So they were either managers or entertainment attorneys or agents. And they had clients that wanted to talk to somebody that maybe looked like them, sounded like them, didn't mind the tattoo or the multiple piercings. And so they would send in Laura Wasser to talk to whether it was a a young pop star whose all of her agents really wanted her to have a prenuptial agreement or somebody that was going through a custody situation and needed somebody to understand what clubs that they were going to or maybe didn't need to go to while they had kids. And so that was me, and that's how it kind of came to be. And then I think our success and our, I think, really discretion in terms of trying to keep things relatively out of the public eye as people are going through a difficult time has been really some of the secret to our success at this firm.
1: In working with numerous celebrities, how are these celebrity cases different from non-celebrity cases?
3: They're not so different. I mean, I say all the time that divorce is the great equalizer. I mean, and yes, some of the celebrities may have more money than your average person, but most of our clients at the firm are pretty high net worth. I think the biggest change would be the the media and trying to keep things private and out of the media for the benefit of the family. And then the other thing is that often celebrities have a lot of people with whom they surround themselves who are getting paid either a percentage of what they make or just on payroll to make sure that that celebrity is happy and taken care of. And so that job is to say yes a lot. And that's not my job because all my job is, is to interpret and imply the law. I can't change the law. I'm not a legislator. So I don't always say yes. And I end up saying no. And sometimes a celebrity who has now been for many years in the spotlight and surrounded her or himself with people that say yes, here's no. And they may not like that right away. They may even say, I don't think this is a good fit and I don't want to work with you anymore. And then They may actually come back later and say, I appreciate that you weren't trying to blow sunshine up my ass. I wanna work with you.
1: And why is that important? Just in terms of like going about a case and and not being a yes man?
3: Because you really have to build realistic expectations in family law. You can have the most sophisticated, successful, intelligent head of a studio or investment banker come to you and he or she will say, I don't know anything about divorce law. And you're like, well, of course you don't. Why would you? It's a totally foreign place for these folks. And it's dealing with the most raw and important emotions that they have regarding their significant other, their children. It's scary. So if someone comes to you and says, well, obviously I'm the mom, so I should have the kids full time, right? You have to say no. In California, we have not a written assumption, but a- presumption that both parents will have equal time with the children. And I can't tell you that you're the mom and you should have the kids. And just because he's a jerk and he cheated on you, that might make him a bad husband. It doesn't make him a bad parent. And your kids have a right to experience their other parent as well. And so I think it's really important because it's a confusing and emotional enough time to not have somebody giving you the straight.
1: Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with best-selling author, marketing expert, and the owner of the Savannah Bananas, Jesse Cole. His world-famous Bananas baseball team has captured the attention of millions of people around the world, resulting in a waitlist for tickets to their games that's in the tens of thousands. Jesse's achieved this success by living out a simple but controversial mantra. Whatever's normal, do the exact opposite.
4: Well, you're right. We shouldn't exist. I mean, you can't name any of our players. We have no advertisements at our ballpark. We play in a 1920 stadium. We are first run by interns. I mean, there's so many reasons why we shouldn't exist. We sell only one type of ticket. I mean, we do everything kind of countercultural to what the business does. But yeah, it's an absolute circus and a baseball game breaks out. And that's what we do. And six years ago, you know, I forgot that. When we first came to Savannah, we tried to fit in, and my wife and I were trying just to get anybody to come out to the games, and we were like everyone else. And you said, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. We were doing the normal things, and we were failing. And so I've learned that if you really want to stand out, you got to go do the exact opposite of what everyone else is doing. And so the bananas are. focused on fans first and entertainment. We have, you know, a senior citizen dance team called the Banana Nanas. We have a male cheerleading team called the Mananas. You know, we have breakdancing coaches. We have banana babies during games. We have a banana pep band. We have a player on stilts. We play in kilts. We do dances in the middle of the game. We do TikTok trends while the game's going on. It is all about entertainment. And now the biggest risk that we've taken is developing a brand new game called Banana Ball, which has really taken off. And it's all stemmed from the two words, fans first.
1: So now you guys are selling out every game. And I can attest to this because before we started this podcast, I went to the website and I was trying to get tickets for an upcoming game. And it was like, all right, you're in position 192 or whatever it is in line, keep waiting. And I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. So ESPN, I think, called you guys the greatest show in baseball. I mean, this is absolutely wild. Before we get into all that, I'm curious as to where your love of baseball really, where it came from. It seems like you've loved baseball all of your life.
4: I did have a love for baseball. Now I have a love for what baseball could be. I don't love the current game of baseball. I think the current game of baseball is very challenged, but to go where the love started for me, you know, I was, An only child grew up in Massachusetts. My parents got divorced. My mother had some real challenges. And fortunately, my father got custody of me. And that was the one bond we had. Every day my dad came home from work, we'd go to the baseball field. He built a mound in my backyard so I could pitch. And every day I fell in love with the game more and more. You know, I was fortunate to be Bat Boy for the Red Sox for one game at Fenway when I was five years old. I got to pitch at Fenway when I was 20 years old in an All-Star game. And it was everything. I really loved the game playing. Watching the game was different. So that was really the big aha moment happened for me is that watching the game was not nearly as fun as playing the game. And I wanted to create that same type of feeling that I had playing for everyone watching. And that's really where the 15 years of experiments happened to lead us to where we are today.
1: So I want to fast forward to 2014 when you and your wife, Emily, who's seems like been very instrumental to all of this progress, when you guys went to Grayson Stadium in Savannah and at the time, I think this is the stadium that had been there since 1926, You all had a vision that nobody else seemed to have, if you could speak to that.
4: Yeah, and I give credit to Walt Disney. I mean, he's famous for saying it's kind of fun to do the impossible. And the poster I have in him, it says vision, and it says that quote below. Yeah, I mean, I proposed to her in front of a sold out crowd with our team in Gastonia, had fireworks off in the middle of the game, delayed the game for like 20 minutes. The umpire's like, What are you doing? I'm like, This is our moment. And uh, she surprised me with a trip to Savannah. We went to a minor league game. There was less than 100 people in the ballpark Saturday night, beautiful night at the stadium. And it was the deadest environment I've ever seen. Like, you could picture like a tumbleweed coming through, like Kansas coming through the ballpark. I mean, it was it was nothing. But I looked at the stadium. I saw what an opportunity. Savannah's a fun city. 14 million tourists. A 1926 ballpark that FDR gave a presidential address there. Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron played there. I said, there's something here. And so, yeah, I reached out to the commissioner of the Coastal Plain League, that the college league they we were in. And I said, you know, we want this market. And He said, sure, Jesse, whatever you say. And they left. They said they couldn't be successful there. They wanted a new stadium. And we convinced the city to give us a chance and, and
1: got the keys on October 5th, 2015. In November of that year, you guys threw a launch party. I think 80 people showed up, mostly press. You sold two season tickets and the caterers for that event, I think they felt so bad for you. They didn't even send you a bill.
4: Yeah, they literally gave us all the food and all the alcohol for free. They were like, because we, we were in this huge conference center, and it was just nobody there. And we literally had an event. It was We made it free for everybody. We we're like, we're here, we're here. And like, people were like, who are you? We don't care. Like, we, did, we sent personal invitations. We literally went to businesses' doors and gave them invitations. And like, I remember Emily tells a story, which isn't in the book. They, she walked into an ice cream place, and they said, we're not interested. And she said, we're just giving you a free invitation. Like, we're, we're your neighbor. We're not interested. And I was like, oh, my God. They're not even interested, and we're giving them free stuff.
1: Everything worthwhile is an uphill climb, right? So, from what I recall, you're five months out from opening day, and things are really down to the wire. I think you and Emily got a call when you were at your best friend's wedding. What was that situation like?
4: I was fired up. It's my college roommate's wedding. You know, we were all excited to have some fun, and it's 4:45 on a Friday, and we got a call from one of our team members that we just overdrafted our account, and we're about to miss payroll. And we're like literally getting ready to go on the bus that Friday for the wedding. And Emily's like, OK, so quickly, like I transfer some money from my personal account to make sure we cover payroll like quickly before five o'clock. And we got in the, the bus to go to the wedding and we just were like dead silent looking at each other. And once we got in the party, we were like, all right, just have fun for Steve, you know, make it a good time. And we drove home from New Jersey the next day and around an hour in the car, Emily turns to me and says, uh, we just have to sell our house. And so we built our dream house in Charlotte, and it was our dream house. We had a hot tub and fire Bell, because we had a lot of success with Gastonia. We were fortunate. We sold it, and we emptied our savings account, emptied out, and put the money into Savannah because we were over a million dollars in debt, put the money into Savannah, and got an airbed. And I remember the first time we were in town, and we had to get food, and Emily says, we only have $30 to go grocery shopping this week. And we went to Walmart with $30 and it was like, that's where we were just six years ago, which is is crazy. But I look back at it with fond memories now because I'm glad we went through it because it makes us appreciate where we are
1: now more than anything. Man, and going through this journey with your wife, Emily, I mean, that in itself, and I say this as somebody who started my business with my wife, Jessica, what was that journey like? Were you two always on the same page? Was she always supportive?
4: Anybody who works together, if they say they're always on the same page, they're crazy. Because, you know, what draws you together as any marriage or couple is not always work. There's things that, that you're excited about, but it's also something different. And for us, work started consuming us. It became everything because we had to get out of the debt. We had to keep our team going. We had to. And so, yeah, it was challenges. I'm this crazy showman type promoter, and Emily's the realist. And she's like, Jesse, we can't do that most of the time. And so we had to have those conversations. And it was struggles for a while because we're both trying to pursue this, and she was away from her family family, But the biggest thing that we learned is that let's stay in the lane that what we enjoy, what we love and what gives us energy. And so now, I mean, Emily is all about our people. She has 1% of our budget to spend on solely surprising and delighting our people. And that's 1% of top line. So if you have a very successful company that's growing, like that's growing every year, just to surprise and delight. She does that. And it makes me so proud. I helped run the show and that makes her proud. And like we stay in each other's lanes. And I think that's what's been really successful in us moving forward and making the difference that we're making. So then when it came to naming the team, like how did
1: you end up deciding on the Savannah bananas?
4: On that November, that huge event with 80 people that showed up total, that monster event with the media that I said, uh, we need a team name that's dramatically different. And I was very specific. I go, we don't want anything that anyone's been called before. We don't want anything like, you know, an animal or whatever. And so what do we get? A thousand normal, already named, like the Braves. You guys could be the, you could be the Savannah Braves, the Savannah Cardinals. are like, they've already been that. Like. The ports, the anchors, the sailors, the skippers, like it was just all generic names. And um, it wasn't until like two days before the contest ended, a 62-year-old nurse put in bananas. And me and Emily and the team looked at each other like, that would be crazy. And then all of a sudden, Emily said, go bananas. And then like someone said, "What we can name the mascot Split. And then someone said, what about the banana nanas? And we started like, just like kids, like, like you're picturing like a kindergarten class, like just rhyming stuff and like saying things that could do. Like that's what we were doing. And we said, it'll create enough attention that enough people won't like it, but the people that know us, that know we're about having fun, they'll love it and it fits our brand. And so we decided to do it. And we spent two days working with our team on how to deal with the criticism because we were right on that February 25th. We we got it pretty strong.
1: Yeah. And it seems like throughout, you've always kept the fans involved, right? Whether it's crowdsourcing the name of the team or either other initiatives. In fact, I believe you even dedicate the book to the fans. I guess why that strategy and has that ever backfired in the sense that like if we if we open this up to everybody, how do we know it's going to yield good ideas? <laughs>
4: it's scary when you open things up to fans because, you know, generally, if you put a thousand people together, they're going to come to the middle, And for the bananas, a guy in a yellow tuxedo, I don't like to go to the middle. So if we made it a popularity contest, we would have been Savannah Braves. We would not have been the bananas. So we're selective on when we take just suggestions or when we do kind of a popularity vote, which we do for T-shirts, jersey designs, things like that, that we know they're going to be actually buying. But no one was actually the Savannah Bananas was our identity. So we had to be very specific with that. Before we do anything, we always ask, what would the fans think? What would the fans want? I mean, I think it was either Bezos or Howard Schultz. that They said they always pictured an empty chair in the room. And we do the same thing. Do fans want to have ticket fees, convenient fees? You know, do fans want a $30 shirt to be $38.50 because of shipping and taxes? No. So we eliminate it. And we don't know all the answer how to do it. When I tell people this, they never believe like, like, really? I never even thought about that. You buy a $20 ticket from us or a $25 ticket, it's $20 or $25. And not only is it all inclusive, and we can get to that later, but we pay everyone's taxes. So we'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars of people's taxes. And I don't know anybody. I mean, it's always just part of what you do. Here's your taxes. You pay, you've got food, you pay taxes, you get drinks, you get taxes, you get tickets, you get taxes. We pay everybody's taxes for all their food, their merchandise, and their tickets. And I'm not trying to boast. I'm just saying, because I'm a fan, I want a $20 thing to be $20. I want a $5 beer to be $5. And so we put that perspective, even though we leave hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table, but that's our whole mentality. And we work for the fans, the name of our company's fans first. We have to do, take actions to do that. And that's why we I eliminate mean, all ads in our stadium. It's everything we do.
1: Jessica Mogul, who's a master of operational execution, serves as the leadership coach to many of the most successful law firm owners across the country and is the head of coaching strategy at CRISP. And yes, she also happens to be my wife. One of my favorite moments from our conversation was when Jessica explained that vision without execution is hallucination and why almost any visionary or CEO is best served by working alongside someone who helps make their ideas real.
5: I think that is a key component of us working together. And I think any people who are working together really closely is being able to complement each other and not being the same. So at Crisp, we use tons of assessments and whether people are visionaries or they're more operationally structured or everything, you need variety there. And I think also a really important aspect that you mentioned, the fact that you love sales and marketing so much, you're a sales and marketing visionary and essentially I didn't want that. And I think something about a person in this position, they have to really be okay being number two, and they have to actually love being number two. Like I don't actually envy you or anything that you do every day.
1: (laughs) Well, I will say for those listening, it was a battle to even get Jessica on this podcast, just to put that in perspective. But I felt that it was a message worth sharing and that it would be valuable to people. So for those that are listening right now, let's say somebody else maybe feels that everything is a mess in their firm. They're constantly putting out fires. What's the first thing you recommend they do?
5: First thing, you got to take a look in the mirror. (laughs) So whatever is established at your company, your firm, you've established that. If you are the CEO, if you are the owner, you have endorse that. You know, the other day I heard a great quote, you endorse what you tolerate. And if somebody is consistently late and you're like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You're endorsing that. And the rest of the team sees that. And the biggest thing, you know, I really always focus on culture, people, processes, but your A players do not want to be around mediocre people. They just don't. It actually will deter them and push them away.
1: I find that ego plays a large role in driving any type of organizational change because there was a time where I felt that the things that I wasn't good at, it was important for me to get good at them. I mean, there's there's business fundamentals, I think, across the board, like, you know, if you're gonna grow any organization to any level of scale, you will need organizational processes, SOPs, KPIs, all these different things that are necessary for a business to grow and scale. Yet, if that's not something that is your strength, Rather than focusing on how do I develop this weakness, lean into the things that you love and are your strengths and instead find people like yourself.
5: Yeah, and I think it's also people, you know, when I say people like myself, I'm a very, very structured person. Michael's not kidding. It took a very long time to get me on this podcast. Uh, So anything that's kind of outside of my norm, I uh, really have to think about that. I have to process that. And what's interesting though is in this position, you have to be okay being uncomfortable. So, especially you're working with a visionary CEO, you can't be entirely stuck in your ways. I actually remember. When I say there were no processes, Michael at this time was making every single sale and uh, 1-800 number rings. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you do? Like, how do we replicate this? And we didn't have an answer. So I made a process and then I hand Michael this beautifully packaged up process. And I said, okay, great. So here's your process. You can do something and we, we can test it or something. And he goes, great. Uh, you're going to shift the 1-800 number to you, and you're going to test the sales process. And I said, great. So that's how I learned to do sales (laughs) at Crisp was because I was pushed outside of my comfort zone. But I think that's really important because you can't really grow within the company without pushing yourself to those limits.
1: So we got to get to it. This is the one that I think they've all been waiting for. How do we make it work? And how have we made it work all these years? Because now we're married. And I know I mentioned earlier where, where someone find a Jessica. You can't have Jessica. In fact, if you want to lock down Jessica, you marry her and you have a kid. But that being said, over the years... It hasn't been easy, I, by no means, because I, I want to be honest with people that are listening. I mean, I think growing a business is is difficult no matter what industry you're in, no matter what you're doing. There's just the challenges that come with that. But then also doing that with your spouse, I think can introduce even more challenges at times.
5: Oh, yes. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for everyone. I would actually say really, really look deep inside your soul if you are ever considering this. Again, you and I never had the intention of this spanning across many years. Uh, We thought it was going to be for 30 days, but there's a lot to this. I think the pro, of course, like I said before, is that you're not going to trust anyone as much as you trust your significant other being in the business and being the one running payroll or being the one who's mindful of budgets and how much money you're spending and all of that. But at the same time, there has to be some level of separation. And I will admittedly say before we had a child, that separation was pretty non-existent.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will say there's someone running the payroll. I mean, who else could you trust more once, you know, our daughter popped out, we were running the payroll in the, at the hospital.
5: I literally have a photo of this. <laughs> so uh, this also, though, expanded us and made me look at succession planning a little bit differently and making sure that we had layers there because, yeah, it was time for payroll. And guess who knew how to do that? you and I. So there's actually a photo of a little newborn baby. And I'm sitting there saying, please stay asleep for just 10 more minutes. And I'm running payroll on my laptop. But also, again, who do you trust to do that? It's hard. Like I, again, it is not for the faint of heart. Um, And I think that routines are really important. I think that whether it is daily routines, whether it is vacation routines, but you really have to set time aside for yourselves. And you know, it's really hard is you and I would always say, okay, we're not going to talk about business. But the reality is, that's kind of all we had to talk about. I mean, even our first date, (laughs) we talked probably until midnight about work. And it was like what you were doing versus what I was doing. And that was kind of even the beginning of these conversations. So even if you say, we're not going to talk about it, you'll end up talking about it.
1: You know, I will say this, to our credit, I believe we've done a very good job of this over the years in the sense that at the office, unless you were explicitly told and I mean, you, you learn that we are married, many times I think you can go weeks or months without knowing that, you know, we're even together. And I think that stems from the fact that at the business it's, and in the office, it's business. 100%.
5: You are harder on me than any person here, and I think that it should be that way. I don't want special treatment. I don't think that I deserve special treatment. Uh, It is funny that you say that, especially when we were a lot smaller, also before I was a mogul, it was not so obvious, of course, that we were together, but a team back when there were probably 10, 15 people They actually filmed a video while Michael and I were on vacation and interviewed each person and asked how they found out (laughs) that we were actually together. It was hilarious, the stories though. I mean, people literally had no idea for months that we were together because that separation and that professionalism has to be there. That's something I've always been very wary about too, having trained so many offices, if the significant other was involved in the practice. I've seen it go both ways, and I have always made a very conscious effort to not just be, you know, oh, well, that's Michael's wife, and, you know, she gets her way or anything. No, you're harder on me than any person here.
1: So I've seen this when people have, let's say they're in the business with their spouse. I've seen it have disastrous effects, like disastrous. I've seen relationships not only deteriorate, but end over it. It's not even just them, let's say, working together. Sometimes it's just you have the person, let's say the CEO of the firm, and then you've got the husband or wife that's at home, let's say there's a different career path, but it's like them not knowing what they signed up for when you're in a relationship like that. And I've seen people try to make it work because you know they'll hear about, well, let me bring my, my husband into the business, let me bring my wife into the business. I would say that you know, from the onset, I think, look back even to the first date because I remember we had this conversation. It was having complete clarity of like who I am and what you're signing up for, and saying, "Hey, this is the out because the worst thing is to you know to figure this out years later once you're married and have kids,
5: oh, yeah. So I will say that is something from the very beginning. There are even times now when you spit out some crazy idea and you're like, are you, you cool with this? And literally my answer every time is I know what I signed up for. So I, I know exactly how ambitious it's going to be, how crazy it's going to be. But that alignment from the very beginning could not be more important. And it's interesting too, when you say that about, you know, someone who maybe has a stay at home spouse, because that also can be very challenging. And that was one thing with us working together is like, we've never questioned late nights. We've never questioned how long, you know, someone's going to be there. And and it doesn't just work on one way. I mean, there are nights where you've gone home and I'm still at the office, but we've, we've never like challenged that or been like, where are you? Or, you know, we're, we're in it together and we know where we're going.
1: I think we've learned this over time because I do want to touch on the fact that it's, it's not always great it's not always things aren't always amazing and in fact i want to touch on the fact that is is the business grew and we entered just these new like levels with the business, the, almost like these growing pains. I mean, you have so much evolution happening in the sense that the business itself is very different from what it was back in, you know, 2014, 15 and so on. I mean, it's just on a very, very different level of scale and we didn't know what we didn't know. So we're learning as we go like, you know, with, with a lot of the aspects of the business. I guess let's talk about some of the really difficult times and how that's impacted us because on the, on the bright side, you're in it together. But then, uh, the, you know, the downside, you're in it together.
5: Oh, yeah. It has <laughs> the the up and the downside of being in it together is not always being able to have that separation. So as much as you say that you're going to do it or that you want it or anything, and like I said, before a child, especially, it was way, way, way more difficult. But yeah, I mean, there are nights when we go home and we don't want to talk to each other. Like, we have had challenging days. We are not on the same page about something. And You can't take it personally. And that is honestly something that you you just have to accept that and be okay with that. And it's almost kind of like at the company, if we are critiquing a video and we're giving feedback, we are critiquing that edit. We are not critiquing that as a person, as a human who did that. And so... The same thing goes for the two of us. And when there's feedback, there there's feedback, and it has to be constructive, but also it can't be taken personally.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's been a fun ride. I mean, looking back, it, it is. I, I joke with people. It's like you know, we look at the, you know the years we've been together. It's almost like dog years, right? Because many people, when they're you know in a relationship or married in the morning, they leave and go to work. And then in the evening, they get home and they see their spouse. But we get up in the morning and we get our daughter ready and everything like that. And then we go to work like together. And then we're at work together. And then we go home together, you know, all all those different things. And you multiply that across years. We're together a lot.
5: Oh, yeah. And I think that's where I mentioned routines before are so, so important. And again, it always goes back to alignment from the very beginning. So, I know from the very beginning, you've got things that are non-negotiables to you, but it's the same way, you know, I've got non-negotiables to me. And if I need silence, I need silence. And it goes back to not taking things personally. There are nights I will sit next to you on the couch and I will not say a word for two hours, but you know, I'm not mad, but it's just having some level of boundary with all of that
1: to continue this game-changing lineup, let's hear from Anthony Johnson, whose season one episode continues to be one of our most popular and perhaps divisive podcasts to date. Anthony is no stranger to innovation in the legal
6: industry. In fact, he's earned the moniker of America's Techiest Lawyer. It was like my first or second year, maybe my second year in practice, and it, it goes to show kind of how the industry is too, because what happened was there was somebody submitted at me for this American Bar Association kind of top Techiest Lawyers in America list, and I think the premise of my submission was something around how we were completely cloud-based. We had cloud phone systems. You know, we were all digital uh files. We didn't have any, we were a paperless office. And so just like the bar in 2013, maybe 2012, whenever that was, uh, to be one of America's toughest lawyer, it just dawned on me like how relatively low I thought <laughs> I thought it was. Either that or I just wasn't really, I didn't think I was deserving to be at it at that time. So it's 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 amazing how far we've come since then. Uh, But I guess that a moniker is not a bad brand, I guess, to get early on.
1: Anthony also shared his perspective on opportunities to leverage data in your law firm, including his thoughts on data ownership and data privacy.
6: It's interesting. Recently, uh, maybe six months ago, I had a conversation with a guy that was very early at Facebook and like, you know, helped with, you know, understood the algorithm and actually was taught it and all that kind of stuff. And we were talking about uh, data from the standpoint of quantity. The first thing he told me was he goes, you have no data. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, Facebook has all the data. So like, when you step back and think about that, it's like quantity is really not the key when it comes to data. It is because what happens is if you think that you're collecting enough data to be useful versus somebody like Facebook or Google that actually has that data, uh, you actually have zero. And so then you kind of target, you kind of interact with the data differently. It's like, okay, how can I give indications to that larger set of data that actually lets them use their own data better? So it's a little bit of it's a nuanced distinction, but it, but it really flips the coin on the head when it comes to how much data we have. So I look at quantity of data from a throughput perspective for testing. So a lot of lawyers have a lot of data. All of them don't know, Dick, what to do with it. <laughs> they, they don't know how to, like, they, yeah, I've got, all, I got 50,000 records of clients from the past or whatever. Okay, cool. Run me a report on 27-year-olds that were smokers uh, that you settled or referred out in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Like that's not even that hard, (laughs) but I guarantee they couldn't do it. So it's the fact that they had a quantity of data is not that helpful. It's the fact whenever you have a quantity of data, your ability to architect understanding and to structure data and to structure information in a way that you can test that feedback loop. So you throw the information through it, you see if you're right or not, you kind of incrementally iterate proving out this architecture. And so that's what quantity is for, because once you have that, the data is out on the internet, whether it's you know it's Facebook or Google or whatever. And once you have this machine that could digest data, and that's kind of what's changing right now in the market. Once you can digest the data, your understanding is exponential because all the data lives on the internet. It's not that hard to get. So that's kind of how I approach it. It's about really architecting this fundamental understanding of how data works and how we can use the information we're getting at a certain bandwidth in order to iterate that feedback loop, improve it and then try to get to some curated kind of stress test version of what data should look like in an industry and then convince everybody else to use it, which is actually the easy part. Whenever there's a conversation about data, it often leads to a discussion on data privacy. However, Anthony believes most ignore the larger issue at hand. The way I look at it, it's not really a problem with data privacy. It's the problem with data ownership, I believe. So the thing is, is that I look at data that it's either private You know, it's something that I have and I understand and I own or I control, or it's public and it's out in the public sphere and no one else should really own it. And so it's about the ownership of data, which does have an effect on privacy because if you get these centralized uh, hubs of people that own data, whether it's, it used to be the government, but really they're not even the big power anymore. Now they're actually borrowing the data from Google and Facebook, you know, GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. But if you have these small, Number of entities that control these hubs of data in a centralized way, because that's actually you know whether it's Amazon Cloud or Azure or whatever, they're actually the ones holding the data and controlling the flow of information. Then it's really in the power of their hands to, to make the rules of how that that data is delivered to the world. The problem is when you have a person owning that centralized database, they don't really have the incentive to be the police. You know, like those guys are advertising. They are. It's almost like putting your hands in and making that decision, like from like a, godlike stance of the the infrastructure to say that's not allowed this is allowed and so the way i look at it is that the only way there's no way to play the rules of that game the centralized game there's no way to beat facebook at being the best social media company or the most used one it's just too late they're too big and so the only way to disrupt that industry is to kind of change the rules and the only way to change centralized database and the ownership of data and the way it's structured today is to figure out a way to start siphoning that data into a new world whether it's decentralized or or quantum database or something like that to where it can build on itself. So that's kind of the only way to truly regulate something as large as the internet is to get everyone access to it in the same way and let it curate itself and self-organize. That being said, regardless of how it innovates, I think that there is an absolute version of the future for me that it goes one or two ways, that either the centralized people win and there's a handful of people that Essentially, can create tyranny over the world and 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 control the masses because you got Tesla launching forty thousand satellites right now. You've got all these companies uh, that are going to control the internet space. Well, what country regulates the internet space? Country Amazon and country Google, you know. And so, if they can do that, think about all the people in third world countries that now have cell phones and what is your ability to now send a message to four billion people to get them to do what you want with the information we have when they have just been. 10 years behind inundated with this godlike technology and somebody being able to control it so i think that's one version of the future and i think the only other version there is is to figure out a new world where those people don't have that control and there is this distributed power and this way to kind of self-organize and crowdsource the kind of the new way to hold data and i think it's inevitable and plan to be part of it anthony and i spoke at length about quantitative metrics
1: and how being data driven is a tremendous competitive advantage from law firm owners However, interestingly enough, in recent years, Anthony has invested heavily into his firm's brand and brand marketing, something that's almost impossible to directly measure. I wanted to know how his perspective had evolved over the years of running his law firm and what he's doing differently now
6: versus when he first started out. Yeah, so it's interesting It's because I started down the path of being very micro on quantitative measures, um, and that's how the, the digital marketing movement started. You know, we were able to track every click and every call and all this stuff. But over the past, you know, two or three years, you know, in understanding this more and starting to move up the funnel and starting to understand kind of the effect of brand, you realize there's a lot of information out there that says most people, you know, um, touch the brand on four different platforms before they actually connect. They might see you on mobile, they might see a billboard, they might see you on social or video. So people went from this ROAS metric, which is return on ad spend with digital marketing where you tie Facebook spend to profit or uh, Google spend to certain return on ad spend to going almost backwards and flipping it again to return on uh, like ROI, uh, which is almost more of a macro metric from like a finance perspective. It's like you deploy this capital on this strategy, you might have allocations for brand um, for kind of a cross pollination, top of funnel that may not be specifically linked to conversion, but gives you lift on the whole company. And so once you started operating at a level where where you have enough of this uh, underlying traffic and foundational audience to to impact that with brand, you can't really measure incrementally or at least quantitatively the direct impact of brand on every single lead you have. But if you look at it from a more macro perspective, you almost have to step back, which is weird for me to say. And you have to look at when I spend this more money on that brand. You know, you you see what you did compared to everything else you did and you see the lift throughout the whole company and you have to really look at that metric from more of a, you know, qualitative and uh, more macro perspective.
1: So this is really interesting to me because it, it, as you and I know. I mean, we, we, you're both in uh, in the legal groups that we're a part of, and you see some of the most successful firms in the nation. And there's oftentimes a correlation between they're they're also very heavily investing in their brand and in, in whatever that is, whether it's in more traditional mediums like TV and billboard or in you know digital like online, social, PPC, SEO, you know, whatever it might be. But there's always a very heavy brand investment, and yet it's oftentimes one of the least trackable things you can do.
6: Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, I'm in this mastermind group that's pretty great at a uh, guy runs. Uh, his name is Michael. Uh, but but so I was in there and it was a day where we focused on what's the best kind of marketing tactic. And of course, you know, I was like, well, I do a lot of this stuff. I was like, I felt like it wouldn't be that fascinating or novel at least. But what I realized was almost everybody's best tactic in the room was some type of brand play. And it, a lot of it wasn't even to do with legal. It was one of those things where uh, it was a you know community hometown hero campaign or something to where they they really got that that feelings connection with their audience, and then once I dug down more into like talking to the very successful uh, especially personal injury law firms, I realized that a lot of the direct to consumer marketing, a lot of the digital marketing that's more like leads based or whatever maybe drives quantity, so it builds your audience, but it really just kind of pays the bills most of the time is lower injury cases. It's uh, it's uh, there's less of a kind of emotional stickiness to your client. And so what I what I dug into finally after a while is realizing that most people that are very successful, they basically ba- barely pay the bills maybe with their, their direct to consumer marketing, but their brand marketing causes their second generation cases, causes their, their referral centers. It causes uh, evangelists of your tribe, of your brand and of your firm. And that is where they have exponential growth when it comes to profitability. So It's definitely a two-part component, and if you want to have success and profitability, if you don't have brand, you kind of lose that entire thing. To round out this Summit Spectacular
1: episode, we revisit the conversation I had with Joe Fried, founding partner at Fried Goldberg. Over the course of his career, Joe's tried cases in over 35 states and has achieved over $700 million in verdicts and settlements. But what motivated Joe to become an attorney in the first place? Sitting in a
7: courtroom, to me, was like sitting in a hallowed place. It was... It was a place that, even as I was a police officer, starting when I was 19 years old, so I was pretty young. But even even at a very young age, I felt that important things happen here, and I also saw with my own two eyes that justice is not equal at all. Justice is not blind at all, and despite the our you know affirmation that it will be, it's not. And one of the big difference makers is the lawyer, uh, and so I saw that as the place that, that I should go, uh, the place that I could make a difference. Um, I had a, an older sister who was an, an attorney at the time, and she, um, she helped me make that decision. And I had a judge who pulled me up one day, asked me to come talk to him and, and told me in chambers, kind of like, what are you doing? Do you want to do more? Not that law enforcement isn't a noble thing to do, because it is, but that's the that was the that was the way it all started, and um, so I went to law school. I did well. I'd always been a good student. Came out, did my clerkship.
1: Yeah, that was the that was the real motivation for the transition. You know, it sounds like you could have hyper specialized in a number of different areas. You could have done a lot of good in a number of different places. I am curious as to what what led you down trucking in particular.
7: Well, I, first of all, I had not I did not have a lot of trucking experience at that time, and I really was. I was floating around trying to decide what to do. I, I even, I took some business cases. I took a Fair Labor Standards Act case. I took a case against a broker in a real estate deal. I mean, I, at the time, there was also a lot of tort reform talk. I didn't know what was going to happen in the industry. And then for a couple of weeks leading up to a particular night, everything that it's felt like everywhere I turned, it was trucking. I, I even got, you know, I turn on the TV and there was you know, a know, truck wreck I would look in the paper and there's a truck wreck and you know everywhere I looked it was trucking I even got on an airplane and somebody had left a a copy of a of a publication called transportation topics which I still am a subscriber to uh, now and it was open to a truck safety article you know in the seat back pocket in front of me and I'm like really I mean uh, somebody's trying to tell me something here and so, uh, within a few nights of that that airplane uh, ride, I was tossing and turning in bed, and it was well after midnight. And the internal dialogue for me was, um, "It's time to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up, and you know, it's got to be specialized. But what's this supposed to be? Well, I think something's saying saying to me, I'm supposed to do this trucking thing. I don't know. You know, trucking is different than auto products and and Medmal because people are happy to send you the product case. They're happy to send you the MedMal case because of the cost and the risk of those cases. But people look at truck cases as kind of a gem case and they're not going to need to refer the case, but they're not really specialists in it. Neither am I. I mean, I wonder if there is enough to dig into to really make this a specialty onto itself. And long and short of it is about three o'clock in the morning, I decided that I was going to be I was going to be a truck accident lawyer and at the time you know I know now lawyers look around and they see ads everywhere everybody's a truck lawyer at the time people laughed at me I mean the next day I went in early in the morning literally I was the first time I was energized in a long time I went in I was waiting for my at that time staff of one person to come to come in who left with me from my old firm so I could tell her what my you know midlife crisis moment was or what I was thinking. And I was taking myself off of all these boards that I was had been put on. I, I was sending messages to people who were on these product boards that I was on for the fuel-fed firework that I had been doing. And I had gotten some notoriety and gotten put on uh, some national boards. And I was writing to them. I went to sleep last night, an auto products lawyer. I woke up this morning. I'm a truck accident lawyer. And people who were up that early were responding to me saying, what did you drink last night, man? I mean, first of all, you've got this incredible practice where, you know, you're making a lot of money. And you're just going to stop doing that? You're going to stop just like on a dime? And my response was, yeah, I'm already stopped. It's done. That's in the past. And so, about 8.15 that morning, uh, the phone rings. And um, you, know, you got to understand this. I had no trucking cases when this decision was made. I pick up the phone. I'm in my new little office, which is little. I'm, I'm renting space from a good friend of mine, all on my own at the time. And this lady with a kind of a far off voice starts to talk to me. And she said, is, is this Joe Freed? I said, yes, ma'am. How can I help you? And she said, um, at three o'clock this morning, my husband was killed, and I said, "I'm so sorry to hear that." What what happened? And she said, "I, I don't know, but I, I don't know what happened, but I know that he got hit by a truck." And I thought, really? I mean, this is some, some weird stuff, man. And this is almost like like did I cause this? No, I hope I didn't cause it. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, but that's kind of the thought I had. I said, "Well, how did you know to call me?" And she said, I, I don't really know how, how I have your name. And she, call, she called me. I mean, I don't know if somebody in law enforcement gave, gave her my name. I don't know if, I mean, at the time, I, I probably had a website, but I certainly wasn't a trucking website. And of course, I said, well, don't talk to anybody else. I'm on my way to come see you. And right about that time, my one staff person came in and I said, we're now a trucking firm. That's what all we're doing. And I'm on my way to sign up our first client. But from the moment I made the call to do this, I blew up the other bridges. I You can imagine I continued to get phone calls for product cases that would have been million, multi-million dollar product cases. I turned them down. Uh, instead, and I didn't have many cases. Instead, what I did is I, I took a lot of steps to become a real expert, subject matter expert in trucking, studying the regulations, studying the training, studying... What does it mean to be a CDL driver? All the things that I now go around the country and try to teach other lawyers about and started to develop, it was the early stages of developing what I now believe to be best practices and that I teach about all over the country. It's been an amazing thing and it really feels like I'm doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing.
1: So that's absolutely incredible to me and in the sense that there's really a few things at play here. One, you just decided to become the trucking lawyer and then the following day you were, and it seems like many attorneys struggle in the sense of they say, well, I don't know if I could be the trucking lawyer yet or the med mal lawyer or what have you, but you burnt, you know, essentially burnt the ships and uh, and made that commitment. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is you mentioned that when you started, you didn't have any trucking cases. So I imagine that probably took a, a great degree of commitment and and maybe even confidence in knowing that you would be okay. But I guess what was going through your head at that time, when essentially you're turning everything else away and you don't have any trucking cases, but you know that that's the path you want to go down.
7: I, I'll be honest with you, I was scared to death. I mean, that's that's the um, the truth. Is I was, you know, the more we spend time getting to know each other, the more you'll see that fear has driven so many things in my life uh, and directionally what I've done. Um, but I was scared. That's about the time I looked to to um, become a partner with Michael Goldberg and, and at the time Buck Rogers. And they had trucking experience. Uh, they had worked together on trucking defense at, at Dennis Quarry in Atlanta at the time. In fact, that's how they met. And I came to them and we we, we had decided we were going to sort of team up as a firm. And I went to them and I said, I think we should market ourselves as the truck lawyers. And their response, which was the world's response at the time, is we won't get enough business. It's too narrow. People will stop thinking about us for other things and we'll end up shriveling up into a nothingness. And, and I said, okay, well, you know, I mean, I'll do it myself then if you don't want to do it. I market just me in that direction, but ultimately they they trusted in the vision, and they they delved into it. And you know they already had a lot more expertise than I did, and we started from the beginning to, at the time, more than brand ourselves. We had to first teach the world that this was a subspecialty, if you will, that this is not just a marketing ploy to get trucking cases that there was enough substance, enough difference between handling trucking cases and handling auto cases that the world needed people who were specialists in this area. And while we were doing that, we were branding ourselves into the leadership of that sort of new space, if you will. And I think that that timing is important because I think that as we were doing this, there was a lot of there, there was at least some other hyper-specialization starting where you would see people, you know, there were already people doing just med mal. Uh, there became more people, for instance, starting to focus on nursing home cases and becoming really true specialists in nursing home. And you know, there were a few things like that. The idea of hyper-specialization was... Um, in, in its infancy, I think it still is in its infancy, because if you compare us lawyers, the legal field to, for instance, the medical field, where you see what specialization is there and you ask yourself, are we really doing anybody any favors pretending
1: to be generalists, you know where my leaning is. I want to give a huge thank you to every guest who's joined me so far this season on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader if you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book, absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691, and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com.